today's scripture reading is from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as he is good as dead, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Come on up, Dana. I'll just pray for you, and then you can share. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that Dana is here today, and I just ask that you bless her as she shares, and that your words would be in her mouth, and that our hearts would be open to what you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Mutual checking out. <laughs> How am I doing so far? Uh, <laughs> oh, this is going to... Jack, is this okay? It's all right. You'll fix it. That's great. Uh, I'm so grateful to be with you. I love this scripture. And um, I have never... I have never been to a mutual checking out before. I have never done this kind of process. And so I wasn't really sure... Uh, I wasn't sure what the what an appropriate message is to bring. And then a couple of days before I was coming, um, God really brought this to my mind because I was uh, thinking about my grandparents. And so that's where I'm going to start. I want you I want you to be able to hear some stories about me <laughs> uh, this morning so that you can get to know me. And then we'll kind of anchor it in Hebrews 11. So if you want to have that open with me, you're welcome to. Uh, whatever you like. Um, My grandparents had a farm in Manila in Ontario, which is this very tiny town, uh, three to 500 people uh, year to year. And I spent my summers there when I was growing up. Um, I would float boats down the creek in their house made out of those old styrofoam egg cartons, the pink and green ones. Those are the best boats. And uh, I'd follow them down along the creek with a stick so I could poke them and dig them out from under the bank when they got stuck. I spent hours in their barn uh, swinging off this huge rope that was just wrapped around some rafters and turning over the bales of straw looking for barn kittens. I love barn kittens. <laughs> so. um, I would sit on the fence rail in the pasture at the end of the day and just watch the sunset and really know in that farm, in that place, that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And then a few years ago, I was driving from Kingston, Ontario, where I live, across to Muskoka to spend the weekend at a cottage with some friends. And I 
am pretty terrible with geography, so it caught me in just utterly by surprise when all of a sudden my GPS had me turning down the old farm road, and I recognized it. I didn't, I didn't know the farm was between Kingston and, and Muskoka. Uh, so I, you know, I'm driving down this road, and I pulled into the, the long gravel driveway and drive up to the end, and I walked up the steps that I hadn't set foot on since the house was sold 15 years ago. And I rang the bell, and I was hoping that somebody would let me, like, step back into my childhood for the afternoon. And no one was home. So I, you know, I'm <laughs> a little bit nosy. So I'm peering through the window and, uh, and, and trying to check it out and wondering about these new people who are living in my family's home. I took three or four really deep breaths, kind of savoring the air, and I, can, I could see the, the stand of trees that I know the creek is right behind, and I can almost hear barn kittens. And the longing was so heavy in my chest that I just, I mean, I cried the whole rest of the drive to the cottage. The first, uh, the first homeless person I really met was Chris. I was on a March break trip with my youth group, and we were volunteering at a drop-in center, and I was serving hot chocolate and wearing this little wooden cross that my friend had carved for me. And when I handed Chris his drink, he said he liked my cross and started talking. He was 15, and I didn't know there were kids my age who were homeless. I gave him my phone number, which may or may not have been wise, and we kept in touch for a little while. He would call my house collect every few weeks for about six months, and then I never heard from him again. And I don't know what happened. You know, it was before cell phones, and I didn't know his last name, and there was no way to find out. So I still have that cross, and it kind of makes me sad when I see it now. I think there's a place um, in me, I don't know if this is in you, but there's a place kind of at the top of your gut or the bottom of your chest that, um, that like, catches sometimes. It stings or something when you catch a vision of home, when you just come close to home. And I still feel it when I drive through farm country, even if I'm nowhere near my grandparents. But it also catches when you encounter something that is so sad, so deeply broken, that you just can't imagine that's actually happening. Like a 15-year-old kid in a homeless shelter, or this picture of the Syrian boy with the bloodied face in the back of the ambulance. Or, I, I know this was true here recently, a father who's killed in a car crash and won't see his kids grow up. I'm so sorry about that. Those things that are sad awaken this longing in us, a longing for home. And Hebrews 11 tells us that God's people have always lived with that longing. Abraham was 75 years old when God asked him to walk away from his father and his family's home and everything he knew. That kind of move is hard. The promise that God made to Abraham was that he would make him the father of descendants, 
the father of a nation. Even though his wife was barren and both of them 75, they're well beyond their childbearing years. He promised that he would be a father of a nation and that he would have a land of his own. And God makes good on the promise of descendants. It takes a little while. Abraham is 100 by the time uh, Isaac is born. So 25 years is a long time to wait for your prayer to be answered. right? But he does make good on that. From Abraham comes the innumerable nation, as many as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand um, on the beach. But the land is different. Abraham's family lives in this land that God shows him, but they only live there as foreigners and aliens. They just live there as guests. They're not permanent residents. In fact, in Genesis, there's this story where Abraham is begging to be allowed to purchase a piece of land when his wife Sarah dies. He wants, he wants to own the land that she's buried in, and he has to beg for it. Now, it's not because he's not welcome or they're not happy he's there. It's because the, the person he's asking to buy the land from keeps saying, no, 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 like what's mine is yours. You just bury her. Go ahead. Use whatever you want. He's, he's so welcome and well thought of. They just want him to feel at home. But Abraham knows that it's not his. And he wants to own at least the place where Sarah is buried. And at the end of his life, that's still all the land that he owns. And it's generations of that family who live with only a promise from God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then 400 years, give or take, of slavery in Egypt and then the Exodus, and then 40 more years of wandering around in the desert with Moses before finally Joshua brings them into the promised land. A long, long time waiting and longing for home. How do they do that? (laughs) I'm so impatient. (laughs) You know, I've been here for four days, and I I want God to tell me, "Is is this the home? I don't know how they did that for so long, so many generations. But Hebrews says they looked forward to the city that has foundations, the city that was built by God. They had their ups and downs, but they looked forward with faith. They believed that God would make good on his promise. And they weren't looking for the place that they'd left. They weren't trying to go back. Um, Again, Hebrews says it would have been easy enough to do that. They had opportunity to go back. And certainly they talk about it enough, right? Especially when they're in the desert, they keep talking about, well, let's just go back to Egypt. But they didn't. They're longing for a better country, a heavenly country. They understood that they were foreigners and aliens. They didn't belong where they were or where they had come from. They belonged where they were going where God had prepared a place for them. When I was living in Ontario and getting ready to move to Nova Scotia, I went out to visit and I taught at a student retreat, and I was so excited to be there. And so I'm standing in line at a retreat, and they're serving us foods. There's someone at the window serving spaghetti. And I'm saying to the person behind me in line, I am so excited to be here. I have always wanted to live in Nova Scotia. I've loved it since I came on holidays when I was 17, and I can't wait to be able to say, I am from Nova Scotia. And the woman who's serving spaghetti goes, 
It doesn't matter. You're never going to be from Nova Scotia. <laughs> doesn't matter how long you're here. You're always going to be from away. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's a lovely woman, and we went on to become good friends, and it turns out she's from away, and so she was just trying to warn me. <laughs> uh, but it really, it really shocked me. It reminded me, I am not from here. This is not my home. And scripture tells us that it is a good thing to know that we don't belong here. It's good to remember that our home is somewhere else, in a, in a place, in a way of life established by God. When I was working on campus at Wilfrid Laurier in Waterloo, we had this practice or tradition or something on our staff team that the most senior member of the team had to look after the sound system, which I hate. And um, that's a, it's a tough thing to be responsible for if you've never moved a sound system by yourself, right? It's like speakers and mic stands and cords forever and a board, and it's heavy. And so anyway, and I lived in a townhouse that had this long walkway out to the car. So it, was, it took me six trips back and forth in the winter, twice, every, every time we went. And just in case you're wondering, it was, in fact, uphill both ways. And so I was complaining about that to my mentor one day, and I was saying, I don't understand why. Like, I just wish we could leave it on the campus. We go to the same room every week. We should just leave it there. And she stopped me and said, don't complain about that. It's good for you. It's good for you to move it. It helps you guys know you don't own that room. It helps you know you don't belong here. You are not from the campus. This is not your campus. You are sojourners here for a little while. You're pilgrims, right? You come and visit. You walk. You come for a while every week, and you worship God there. But that is not where you live, and that land isn't yours. So move the sound equipment. It's good for you. And I did for two more years after that. And I have moved seven times in 12 years, so I know that I can make any place nice with the right curtains and paint on the walls. And I know exactly how many banana boxes will hold all of my earthly possessions, 38. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and I think there's some benefit to that. But in seasons like this where it's high transition in my life, I find myself asking all the time, where is my home really? Where would I go back to? Um, My parents live in Niagara Falls, but I haven't lived there since I was 19. I've lived away longer than I was there. So where do I belong? I have this group of eight friends who now have nine kids between them, so when we go on holidays, it is something. Uh, And I've known them for 12 years, and we all came on staff with InterVarsity kind of around the same time. And we received this profound calling and experience in ministry together. We would study scripture and we were just young and innocent enough to believe we can just do exactly what it tells us. (laughs) And we did. So we bought houses together in the same neighborhoods. And we had community dinners. We ate together all the time. And we, we worked out tough questions on the living room late at night in one another's one another's homes. Questions like, 
how are married people and single people supposed to live in good relationship together in the church? How do you figure that out? And I remember us hearing a sermon that was supposed to be about singleness in the church, and it was preached by this woman who had been married for 45 years. And I don't, I mean, I think she got married when she was 19. I'm not sure what her experience with singleness was. Anyway, and she did a great job. And then we got home and we said, you don't, you don't learn that at a sermon. You learn that, in, learn that in, the, in the living room over tea. You just talk that out. We showed each other our budgets and our bank accounts. We made decisions about buying houses and cars and having kids. We did that together. And so when one of my friends had to be out of town three weeks before his wife's baby was due, they asked me to go and stay with her, and then I got to be at Arena's birth. And when my friend's son, Ethan, was diagnosed with autism when he was three, I was the first phone call. So when Layla and her family came out to New Brunswick this summer to visit, uh, they rented a cottage, and, you know, I drove the six hours out to stay with them. And and I (laughs) slept in a bedroom with their two-year-old son, Azarius, who doesn't know me because I don't live there anymore. And so the first morning he woke up and saw me, and his eyes just got wide because who is this woman in my bedroom? (laughs) His wide eyes, and then he just burst into tears and screamed for 45 seconds till his mom rescued him. But the second morning... He woke up, and he kind of looked at me, and he went, oh, hi. (laughs) I said, hi. Hmm. He says, "Hmm, do you want to go read some stories? (gasps) Yes, I do. (laughs) So off we went. So at 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in the the living room at the cottage with a 2-year-old on my lap and no makeup on my face, which does not happen to me very often. And Layla and Greg came out, and I... I just had this moment where it caught in my chest, right? Like, oh, it's this. This is home, even though none of us own that house. It's not just good friends. When I was in Jordan in uh, June with some students, we walked into a church courtyard on the second day, and this woman I've never met squealed and threw up her arms and grabbed my face and kissed me. Which also doesn't happen to me that often. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and her name was Elisa, and she just hugged me. And she's, she is talking fast, but in Spanish, which I don't speak. And so um, I, I just let her hug me, and I thought, oh, this is home. I don't know her, but this woman is serving the God I serve. In May, I was teaching Genesis, which is a study that I've been part of, you know, ten times or something. And the students are reading the scripture out loud on the first night, and these words I know are just rolling over me, familiar. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And who told you you were naked? And I'm just crying before I even know it's happening. This is home. This, the scripture, the words of God, the shared mission with other believers, the love between people who love because God first loved us, that stuff is always the same. It's where I belong and what I've been longing for. God is very consistent. He is always the same. 
his created intent for us was that we would live in this garden in perfect relationship with him and with one another and with the earth around us, that we would just live at home forever. And it doesn't work out, and that's another story, but God basically sends humanity out wandering. And his people are in and out of the land that he promises them. They're in and out of exile and captivity. Sometimes he tells them, plant gardens and build houses. And other times he tells them, uh, live in tents and don't even pick pick up enough food for tomorrow. But all the wandering and searching is for our good. It helps us remember that we don't belong here. That feeling where we think it shouldn't be like this. All that great sadness and brokenness, that's because it's not the way it's supposed to be. The longing and the searching helps us find our way back home into the relationship with one another and with the earth and with God where we were meant to spend our lives. Abraham spent his whole life searching, and he didn't see the land he was promised, but he did know God. And I find myself now trying to embrace the longing for home, trying to stop fighting it or trying to stop resolving it and wrestling it out. It's hard, though. I still want to paint my own walls. <laughs> you know. And I, and I really hope that the next house I live in has a wood stove, the things that make you feel like you're at home. But it might be okay if no particular place answers the longing completely. If I always have a catch in my throat when I'm driving through farm country or when I'm hearing someone read Genesis, because it means that I'm longing for the heavenly country, a renewed and restored earth, a city whose foundation is built by God, a true home. So I am going to keep packing my boxes and moving my stuff, and I'm quite sure that I'll keep meeting new people and seeing new places, painting walls and planting gardens, and I believe that one day things will get made right and the longing will get answered and we will find home together. Um, I asked Jack if he would play a song for us. Four minutes is a long time to listen to a song you don't know, so I'm sorry about that. But uh, this is a song by a band called The Wailing Jennies, and um, it's called Heaven When We're Home. It's going to feel like heaven when we're home. And so as you listen to it, I just want to invite you to consider, to remember what are the places that are home for you, where you have felt at home, and what kind of longing is God awakening in you this morning?
the words in the chorus are, it's a long and rugged road, and we don't know where it's headed, but we know it's going to get us where we're going. And when we find what we're looking for, we'll drop these bags and search no more because it's going to feel like heaven when we're home. Um, It strikes me that as we're coming to communion that uh, Jesus is an excellent host. And when we're following Jesus, the table here is one of the places where we are always welcome, where we are always at home. And I think it's profound that even on the last night of his life, Jesus welcomed his friends to come to the table and eat with him and gave them a way to remember who they were. So we're going to take communion together. Tom's going to come and join me. And um, I'm really glad to be able to do this with you.